Exodus chapter 12. We're going to continue looking at this uh, middle section to the chapter. We've subdivided, well, really chapters 12 and 13. We've kind of lumped into three major categories. First, we're looking at, we looked at the Passover instituted, chapter 12, verses 1 to 20. Uh, just the concept of the various, several, uh, not all, but several of the laws, regulations laid down for the observance of Passover, the memorial of Passover to be commemorated. The Passover itself being implemented, uh, we looked at, well, we're, we're still in the middle of that paragraph, but verse 21 to 42, we look at uh, Yahweh smiting the firstborn, right? In fact, well, here's kind of our thought flow that we've been uh, looking at. First, we saw Moses instructing the people. He kind of reiterates many in, in verses 21 to 28, a little bit repetitive, but again, recall the, the whole point is this is meant to be read out loud. The original audience would have most likely been listening, hearing this read. So repetition, particularly when it comes to the regulations, can be very helpful to help people retain the information. But verse 21 to 28 is a bit repetitive as Moses repeats in summary fashion the laws and regulations that were laid down in the first 20 verses of the chapter. But then we see the record of Yahweh smiting the firstborn in verse 29 to 30. And then, of course, we'll see beginning, uh, we'll, we'll kind of summarize that this evening uh, and then we'll lump or jump right into that third uh, major point, Pharaoh initiating the Exodus, verse 31 to 42. And then uh, if we complete all that, the next time we'll look at, uh, probably next time we'll actually take a quick pause, do our excursus. I've been promising it for a couple of three weeks, but uh, we'll do a, a quick excursus on the date of the Exodus. We're going to get into some of the archaeology a little bit here this evening, and then we'll, we'll spend at least one week focusing on that because it's a, it is an important issue, not just for academia, but it's practically important because the uh, the issue of the inerrancy of the scripture. The idea of the date of the Exodus is one of the number one tools used by uh, the Bible critics to try and discredit the Bible. And so it's an important subject to at least be aware of in order to all the more be able to understand, affirm, defend the faith. But then we'll, then we'll jump into that third point there, Passover being regulated. We'll look more at the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13, more regulations, laws that are set down by God in order to commemorate, to accentuate, to underscore the importance of this festival of Passover. All right, so with that said, if you got your Bible, let me draw your attention back to verse 29, and let's read down to verse 42, 29 to 42, and then we'll pick it up. Uh, in that verse, all right? So Exodus 12, verse 29 says, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the first, firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened Right? Again, that's the whole point of the unleavened bread. Right? We talked about that before, but it's pointing to the, the haste in which they were going to be thrust out of Egypt. They wouldn't have time to allow the, the bread to rise, etc. 
So verse 34, the people took their dough before it was leavened and the kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver, jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass the end of the 430th years, even the selfsame day that it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. Pause there. Now, again, as we kind of pick up the story where we left off last time, verse 29 to 30 is all about Yahweh smiting the firstborn, right? The actual record of the, the, the tenth and final plague is pretty brief. As has already been the kind of the normal modus operandi, if you will, as Moses is penning the record of the book of Exodus, the lead up to the plague, the description of the plague is often longer than the record of, of the plague happening itself. And again, we see the same sort of thing. So again, this is by way of reviews where we left off last time, but this tenth and final plague is the ultimate example of poetic justice. The first oppressive pharaoh back in chapter 1 and verse 8 had, with the complicity of his fellow Egyptians at all levels, caused the death of all Israelite baby boys in every family. Back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 22. Now, the pharaoh of the plagues, his, that would be the original pharaoh's grandson, and his grand, the grandchildren of the original oppressing generation experienced a corresponding disaster, namely the death of the firstborn of every family. Now, again, we talked about this last time, but just by way of reviews where we left off. This idea of the 10th plague is, yes, it's an example of poetic justice, but it's not a, uh, an example or a case of returning evil for evil. Evil for evil would have been accomplished if the Israelites themselves had figured out a way to kill the Egyptian babies after having come to a position of power over the, their former oppressors. Rather than being an evil for evil sort of scenario, this is actually a case of divine retribution. Justice meted out uh, to those who deserved it. A judgment against an entire society and their absurd religious beliefs that led them to practice the horrible treatment they had given the Israelites in the past, thinking that it was appropriate. So this is where we ended last time, is is just considering this aspect of divine retribution and that's where, again, we just had a fun discussion talking about the wrath of God, how that's being really displaced in modern evangelicalism, etc. But where I want to pick up this evening is a particular archaeological discovery that I'm just going to share with you. And I'm just going to kind of rehearse some notes, primarily from Walter Kaiser, which he, he provides as a summary. But it's a fun archaeological discovery that may well give credence, I think it does, that's why I'm sharing it with you, some will debate this, but I'm convinced of it, that it does corroborate the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And so what I want to share with you for just a few moments before we jump back into the narrative is this short little excursus on the dream Stella 
And how many, how many of you have ever heard of the dream Stella? You heard about this? All right, so let me explain it to you quick. I'll give you a couple pictures in just a minute. But I'll just read through the notes and then, uh, you know, feel free to ask some questions afterward. But let me kind of file through some uh, slides just to kind of inform you of what it is, why it, is, is, it seems to be pertinent to biblical history. And again, just again, take good notes. Check this out on your own if you'd like. But it is an interesting archaeological discovery that helps corroborate the scripture. Like I said, we don't need archaeology to prove the Bible, but nonetheless... When it, we have corroborating or supporting evidence, it's very helpful because it helps all the more uh, assure us as the reality that the scripture is history. It's real history, real people, real places, real events that are taking place. And so because it's real history, it leaves a mark upon history. And so that's where corroborating evidence can uh, evidence that, can show that, reveal that. All right, so the dream Stella is simply this. An interesting inscription has been found on a granite column between the paws of the great Sphinx of Giza, which may serve to authenticate the biblical history of the 10th plague. Here's a couple of quick pictures of the Sphinx. You see there, uh, I don't know if you can, I don't know if that, oh, look at there, my cursor does come through. But right here, this inscription right here, uh, on just between the paws of the great Sphinx, here's just another shot of it. Here's a, a little bit closer up of that inscription. It's significant because of uh, what it, it describes. Again, our chronology that we've thus far used, and again, I'm leaning heavy on Eugene Merrill and others, but the chronology that we have been using for our understanding of the, the flow of events, the historic events recorded in the book of Exodus, identifies Tutmos III as the Pharaoh who sought Moses' life for what he had done in Egypt because he was the only ruler to live long enough to fit the pattern of the one who sought Moses' life for the whole 40 years that he lived in Arabia with Jethro of Midian. Recall this. This was a while back. We talked about the third being the, the pharaoh that, that uh, Moses would have grown up with, that then he, of course, is the one that uh, when Moses murders the Egyptian, he is the one that he would have uh, pursued Moses. Moses flees, and he's exiled for 40 years. Tutmos is the only one of the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty that lives long enough to fit that pattern described in the Bible. Thus, Tutmos III fits best as the pharaoh who wanted to take Moses' Moses, uh, life, and Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of the Exodus. Amenhotep is a good fit for the Exodus for a number of reasons. Again, we've, we've briefly talked about these, but it's been a while, so let me rehash them briefly. Amenhotep II is a good fit for the pharaoh of the Exodus for a variety of reasons. First, while, the most, while most of the kings of the 18th dynasty had their principal residence at Thebes, which was far from the delta, Amenhotep resided at Memphis much of the time. This gave Moses easy access and proximity to the throne without going too far from Goshen, as the text seems to demand. As you just read the book of Exodus, this is one of those things that kind of helps us realize, okay, Menetem II seems to be a pretty good fit. He's unique amongst the 18th dynasty pharaohs in that he resides primarily at Memphis, close to the land of Goshen. Okay, that makes sense. Secondly, Amenhotep's power did not pass on to his oldest son, but instead it came to a younger son, which he named the IV. the IV. And this is where our inscription comes in. This line of succession had been implied in the famous dream Stella that has been found between the four paws of the great Sphinx at Giza. While the young prince rested there, 
This is as the, the inscription describes, the story I'm sharing comes from the inscription. While the young prince, Tutmos IV, rested there after hunting uh, in the Giza area, so the inscription claims, the god, Harmakis, I think is how you say it. All right, if you can do better, then let me know. <laughs> but Harmakis Kefer Re Atum is the name of the god that appeared to him in a dream and pronounced or promised him, rather, the throne if he would clear away the sand that had partially covered the Sphinx. The obvious implication, all right, so that's what the, the inscription describes. But the obvious implication of that inscription is that Tutmos IV had not expected to inherit the throne. The inscription is generally judged to be an authentic restoration of a substantially identical text commissioned by Tutmos IV himself. Again, if Tutmos IV came to the throne in 1425 BC, and if, if he was not over 25 years old at the time, according to the highest estimates by scholars, then he was born at the earliest in about 1450 BC, just three to five years before the Exodus. All right, again, so if we're, we're getting our chronology correct, then Amenhotep is the, the pharaoh of the Exodus. The dream Stella is appointing not his firstborn, Right, but one of his younger sons. Why wasn't the firstborn? Right? Well, because there isn't one exactly. The firstborn died in the tenth plague. That's the whole point. All right? But he would have been probably three to five years old when the tenth plague happened and the exodus ensues. In fact, the mummy of Thutmose IV has been found in his tomb, number 35 in the Valley of the Kings at Thebes, if you're interested to check it out. Uh, he's estimated to be between 25 and 33 years of age at his death. Again, if we take an average of 29 is the age of death in 1417 BC, then he was about 20 at his, uh, his accession to the throne and was born at about the time of the Exodus. Again, Tutmos IV did have several brothers, according to history, who may well have been older than he, one of whom appears to have been the victim of the 10th plague, namely the death of the firstborn. Uh, in fact, Weben Sinu, I think is how you say his name, must have been the eldest son of Amenhotep II since he was granted burial in the royal tomb, but his brothers were not so honored. In other words, that's the mummy that probably uh, was the, the victim of the death, you know, of the firstborn here in the 10th plague, Weben Sinu, all right? Don't you all want to go home and name your next child Weben Sinu, right? It's all right, write that down, just saying, Okay. Now, it's reasonable to conclude that Wabensenu was the firstborn prince who was killed before the Exodus in the 10th plague. The second son of Amenhotep was Kamwaset. Not that that's much better, right? So if you're not sure about Wabensenu, then write down Kamwaset. But uh, he was recorded as having married and therefore must have outlived his older brother. In other words, uh, well, sorry, if we go on, Kamwaset. His death in the last years of Amenhotep II's reign opened the way for Tutmos IV unexpectedly to come to the throne. And hence the dream Stella recording the unlikely rise of Tutmos IV to the position of Pharaoh. All right. Now, I know that's a lot of information. I'm just trying to summarize Walter Kaiser's uh, notes there. But what's helpful is that <clears throat> this is just one of the several archaeological discoveries that we you know, have made not me and my buddy, but, you know, archaeologists have made concerning uh, the Exodus. And there's a lot of these, and we'll, we'll touch upon them as we go. But this is, this is a fascinating one in that it does, it seems to indicate that Tutmos IV was an unlikely ruler, that he was not, in fact, the firstborn, but he was a younger son. 
and the firstborn died in the 10th plague. All right, so if, you're una- if you were unaware of that to this point, go check it out. It's kind of fun. Check out the dream, Stella. All right, uh, but any, any thoughts on that, questions on that before we jump into verse 31 to 42? just want to share that with you. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So don't get me started on this, but since you, since you said so, okay, let me make it. Oh, what do you got to say? I was just thinking, lucky the British soldiers uh, only hit the sticks and missed that Yeah, that's right. Oh, you know the history, my man. That's right. Yeah. There's a number of times that Sphinx has been shot up a few times, right? Napoleon and the Brits and... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's cricket. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They shot it out of alignment. But there's a lot of examples of this. Yeah, that's right. Inscriptions that have been discovered. Um, by the way, there is a modern attempt to erase evidence that, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating. Some of the stuff, early archaeology. Uh, all right, I'm going to give you five minutes on this. Okay. What's that? They were cricket. So the earliest ones, here's the irony. Biblical archaeology, that is the archaeology in the Bible lands, was started by the PEF, Palestinian Exploration Fund. It was a bunch of Brits that said, hey, we're going to go, because they were actually, the critical world was gaining a lot of steam at that time. And they basically said, well, we think that the Bible is just hogwash, right? I mean, it's like there's no way. And, and primarily, their, their primary argument was that they had been to Israel. And Israel was nothing but swamps and sand dunes. It was unlivable. And so they, their argument was there was no way that that land supported the kind of populations and cities that, the, are, that are described in the Bible. There's just absolutely no way. So a bunch of rich Brits got together, put together the PEF, and they said, let's send these guys to be explorers to basically go and disprove the Bible. All right? Well, what happened is they went and they started digging, and they discovered beneath all those sand dunes and swamps, right? They started draining the swamps. And if you're familiar, that, that happened a little bit later with the... Uh, uh, Zionist movement. But long story short, they, they discover these huge cities and roads and fortresses, and they discover all these sites that the Bible said were there. And it's, it's remarkable, but those, those early, there's an early wave of uh, archaeologists that were, uh, they were, it was the very beginning of archaeology as a science. Before then, it was just kind of a hobby. But they started developing kind of more scientific methods to doing archaeology. And some of the earliest finds, they went originally to disprove the the Bible, but they were honest historians. And so they recorded enormous amounts of evidence that is still, I mean, it's still published in their writings. You know, some of the stuff's in museums. But what's ironic is a lot of those pieces of evidence that has been written down, documented, some of them have been photographed, right? It's disappearing from museums. Uh, they don't like putting these things on display. <laughs> but they will whip out, you know, other stuff. Like uh, the, the uh, I'm not going to get off into it, but the whole, <clears throat> the whole idea, and it's, it's, it's fake, it's phony, it's been demonstrated to be so. But if you go to modern Israel, they have an, an ossuary, it's a bone box, that says on it, uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. You familiar with this? So they're trying to say, oh, look, right there. Jesus never rose from the grave. We've got his bones. And they will claim that in modern Israel. And there's, again, it's, it's, a, it's a fraud, it's a phony, but they, there's, there's this huge you know, movement to suppress genuine evidence, to promote false evidence. 
But nonetheless, some of those early guys, uh, a lot of the discoveries that were made have been well documented, but some of the evidence is disappearing. Anyways, but going back to your point, it's fascinating how the Bible proves archaeology. In fact, archaeology, you dig down, you, you discover stuff, it doesn't make sense unless you have a text that tells you what to look for and what you're going to find when you get there. And the Bible is the most accurate text to find these places, right? And, I mean, it's, it's, it's another lecture for another time, but, uh, you know, Jericho has been heralded as, as the number one reason not to believe the Bible. But here's the irony. We never would have known Jericho existed nor where to find it were it not for the Bible. The Bible's the only record from antiquity that mentions it. And it told us where to look. And guess what? Well, we found it. And guess what we found? The walls fell down, just like it said. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, it's amazing. But all they try to do is they try and late date it. And they just fudge the dates. And they, they anyways, it's really uh, terrible what they try to do to, to explain away the biblical evidence. But the evidence is there. It's really remarkable. You got a, a thought question? So I got to double check. Tut came later. He's a little bit later. Yeah. But I have to double check. He's actually, boy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not Tutmos. Tutankhamun is his name. King Tut. Tut for short. He's not Tutmos. He's Tutankhamun. Yeah. But he comes, I think it's, I have to double check. Someone Google it. I think he's either, he's, I don't even know if he's 18th dynasty, but he's, he's after the Exodus. No, no, he's not one of these. Right. Yeah. Um, so you said that the uh, pharaoh of the Exodus, the one who let all the Jews go, mm-hmm. uh, his tomb was found with his mummy in it? Yes. So didn't he lead the charge into the Red Sea? Shouldn't his body be at the bottom of the Red Sea? So, no, good question. It doesn't say he led the charge, necessarily. I mean, we kind of, we, we tend to uh, dramatize that, I guess, in our movies and stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't explicitly say that. Right. But the army did charge down. Absolutely. But because the text says that, but it doesn't necessarily say the Pharaoh died at that event. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He probably wouldn't have led the charge. Yeah. Good question, though. Good question, though. What's that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You guys go. I'm going to stay back here. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a little crazy. I'm going to hang back here for a minute. <laughs> No, that's good. Yeah, we'll talk about some of the uh, the possible evidence that have been discovered when we get to the Red Sea crossing itself back in chapter 14. So, but there is there's lots of different, primarily coral reefs that are that have been discovered underneath that are in these weird shapes that can't be explained, right? Unless they're right chariot wheels or parts of chariots and things like that. Exactly. Yep. And there's a debate on exactly where, you know, I'll, I'll give you what I think, at least to me, makes the most sense where the Red Sea crossing happened, right? There's a big debate on that, but I think the evidence is, is I mean, to me it's conclusive, it's convincing to, to point at one particular location, but that's some of the evidence exactly. Mount Sinai, we'll give a lecture to that. Where is Mount Sinai? Big debate on that. Um, but there's there's some interesting, again, in my mind, convincing evidence that that should help us out with that but 
we just need to all travel over there sometime, right? And just go check out all the evidence ourselves, right? But, and I haven't been to Egypt, but, but uh, you know, maybe someday. But Israel was really fun to go and see so many of these locations, these sites, go to the museums, see the, the artifacts. It's pretty remarkable. Do you have a hand up? Yeah. Right, the shape of the coral. Yep, that's right. That's right. Yeah, there's quite a few videos and, and, and documentary evidence on that. It's fun. Yes? So in the Bible, too, God tells us that the truth will literally come right out of the ground. So he hmm. was telling us about archaeology long before the, there was a science. <laughs> yeah. If we tried to deny that this happened, it was going to come straight out of the ground. So the first book on archaeology I ever read... My, it was in my dad's library. I don't know how old I was. But the name of the, the, the book was And the Stones Will Cry Out, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And, and, uh, and it was a book on archaeology describing, it was, it was using that phrase, right? Remember Jesus coming into the triumphal entry and they say, oh, stop, you know, because everyone's cheering him on as the Messiah. And, he, and they say, stop and, you know, stop your disciples. And he says, if I tell them to be quiet, the very stones will cry out. And yeah, and that would, I'm like, wow, what a great title for a book and on archaeology, right? The stones cry out. Yeah. I like that. That's good. What's that? What verse is that? Oh, it's in Matthew 21. Um, let me look up the exact verse. But it's Matthew 21. Maybe someone can beat me there. It's a, during the triumphal entry. Um, Well, now I need to double check. It might be in Luke's account rather than Matthew's. Because one of the Gospels uses that phrase. Let me check out. Did you find it? No, the stones will cry out. So... So it's Matthew 21 is the first account, but then it has parallel accounts in, of course, you know, Mark and Luke and John. It's during the triumphal entry scene. Oh, it's in Luke. Luke 19, 40. Yeah. It says, and he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. The stones crying out. Yeah, Luke 19, 40. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that, Check it out. Yeah. That video on the line <clears throat> of the Exodus. Yes. And on Joseph's tomb and all that, you know, was it really Joseph's tomb? Yes. Uh, is Patterns of Evidence. I checked it out. Yeah, it is Patterns of Evidence. What's the name of the guy that? Free anymore. Now you got to rent it for three ninety nine. Oh, bummer. Three ninety nine. <laughs> Four bucks. It'll change your life. No, it's good. <laughs> no, it is good. It is good. He's got some good points. Yes. It goes both ways. I looked it up once because it drove me nuts. I'm like, yeah. is it Stella or Steely? Uh-huh. And it's either way. Yeah. Stella. Oh, hey, whoa, whoa, now. <laughs> She's cultured on us. <laughs> uh, they recorded many of the battles also 
Oh man, there is a ton of stuff. There's a really cool book. Well, there's a bunch of cool books. I'll have to pull up one. Uh, it's like a hundred and boy, I'm trying to find it. It's like 101 discoveries or something about yeah, unearthing the Bible. 101 archaeological discoveries that bring the Bible to life. Uh, Titus Kennedy. That's a help. That's a fun book. Um, it just you know again, and it's and it's not even all of them. It's just a you know top 101. Yeah. But the more famous ones, the more well-known or well-documented ones that you can still go see in museums, right, all over the world. And it's, it's, a, it's a blast. I do encourage you. If you're not into biblical archaeology, then check it out sometime, right? It's really good. It's good stuff. But be careful who you read because there's a bunch of garbage out there. So um, anyways, but one of my profs, if you're into it, um, Joel Kramer I've given you his name before. I think he started a YouTube channel, uh, Expedition Bible. I think's the name of the YouTube channel. Um, yeah, so he's one of my archaeology profs. I had him uh, last year, and he's he's legit. Yeah, he knows his stuff. So, anyways, and he's he's one of the few in biblical archaeology today. He's a credentialed archaeologist, but he believes in the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. He's one of the few, if the only, modern archaeologist that does. I mean, it's yeah. So, good guy, though. So, check it out. So, he kind of cheats. What's that? He kind of cheats. Yeah, he reads the Bible first. He reads the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's amazing. He's like, hey, let's read the Bible and then go see what it, you know. It, he found it, too. A Psalm 85, what was it, what verse? 11. 11. Where the ground will cry out. Oh, the ground cry out. There's another phrase. Say it, read it for us. Springs from the earth. Yeah, truth springs from the earth, righteousness looks down from heaven. That's Psalm eighty-five, eleven. Okay. That's the, that's the beginning of archaeology, right there. There you go. There you go. Truth springs from the earth. Amen. Amen. That'll preach. All right. So let's let's direct our eyes back to the text, and primarily verse thirty-one to forty-two. Let's begin our discussion of the Exodus. We'll we'll talk about a few. Uh, events this evening, and then circle back to this next week, particularly talking about the date of the Exodus. But let's let's start by just looking uh, cursor in a cursory fashion at these three big ideas that are given to us, verse thirty-one to forty-two. First, the start of the Exodus, size of the Exodus, and then the span till the Exodus. All right, so let's march through this for the next few minutes here this evening. First, the start of the Exodus. We just read about it, but verse thirty-one to thirty-six records what prompts the exodus itself. After the discovery of his own dead son, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron to grant the unconditional release of Israel. Again, we do not know. We mentioned this uh, back in chapter 10 and 11 briefly. We don't know if Pharaoh here retracted the oath that he would never see Moses and Aaron again. Remember, he swore that oath the last time he saw them back in chapter 10, verse 28. Uh, He may have retracted that and actually called them and, you know, they appeared before him in person, or he merely sent ambassadors as Moses seemed to imply he would back in chapter 11 and verse 8. Either way, Israel is given total freedom so that they can begin the exodus itself. So again, the urgency to expedite Israel's departure is emphasized, particularly in verse 31. First, Pharaoh employs four imperatives. Rise up, get out, go, serve, right? One right after the other. One of the ways to make something emphatic in the Hebrew. Just uh, pile up imperatives one right after the other. 
So the first two imperatives are found elsewhere in the scripture, and we see that combo, rise up and go out, uh, that combo typically indicates great haste. For instance, Genesis chapter 19, that's where God's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, rise up and get out, right? Flee the city because God's destruction is about to come. That's the same sort of urgency that we see here. Again, yet the fulfillment, or the ultimate rather, humiliation of Pharaoh, as Curd points out, is seen in his seeking the blessing of the prophets even after his defeat. I don't know if you noticed that as we read through this just moments ago. But he gives them permission to leave. But in verse 32, he says, take your flocks and your herds, right? Because he did resist that earlier. Remember all the other times that he was trying to connive with him. He says, well, you can go, but leave your wives and children or leave, you know, your flocks or leave whatever. But now he says, all right, every, you know, unconditional. He says, just get out of here. But then he also says at the end of verse 32, and bless me also. Again, this is, this is a... a <laughs> to use an ironic phrase, this is the height of humiliation for Pharaoh in the sense that, you know, he is the king of kings in that world, right? He was the the most revered and feared royal figure in antiquity. And yet he is here not only being humiliated, but asking the blessing from his enemies. This It's abject defeat. He's recognizing he's lost that Moses and Aaron represent uh, a, a God, a deity that Pharaoh cannot resist, he cannot overcome. So he ultimately succumbs and asks, just bless me. And so again, this is, uh, it's, it's underscoring that. But the, the text goes on to describe that not only Pharaoh, but also the common people were also urgent to expel the Hebrews from Egypt. Uh, again, a literal rendering of the, the opening of, of this verse in verse 33 reads, the Egyptians pressed or made strong upon the people. It says they were urgent upon the people, depending on your translation. Ironically, this verb is the same one that is used of God hardening or making strong Pharaoh's heart. We saw this verb show up back in chapter 7 and chapter 8. So again, it's one of those ways that in, in just the editing, compiling, the recording of this narrative, Moses is bringing out the irony, right? That as they hardened the heart and they were uh, you know, that, that same verb that was used to describe that is now that, that resolve to disobey God is now the same sort of resolve, the urgency that they have to get them out of Egypt. So again, as Currid rephrases it, thus previously the Egyptian hearts were hardened not to let the Hebrews go, but now they're equally determined to force them to leave. And only God could do that sort of reversal of attitude and, you know, reversal of fortunes, if you will, for Israel. So this sort of urgency is, of course, we already talked about it, so we don't need to camp on it, but the idea of, you know, the unleavened bread, right, the, the, he points out that they, they had to take the dough before it leavened because, uh, or before it rose, it had to be unleavened because of the urgency that uh, they were going to be thrust out of Egypt with. They, they are, of course, fulfillment of the promise that was made, the predicting back in chapter 11, that they would spoil Egypt. That, of course, takes place, recorded in verse 36. And so all of these things that we've already talked about are here now being recorded as, hap- as having, having actually happened. But then the, it tells us in verse 37 to 39, it gets very specific regarding the size of the exodus. Uh, verse 37, it says, And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. There was also included in this number 
or I'm sorry, in addition to this number, a mixed multitude that went up also with them, including then also flocks and herds and very much cattle. And then it reiterates the fact that they had unleavened cakes of dough, which they were brought forth out of Egypt. And it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt with such haste, right? They, they couldn't wait. They couldn't tarry or prepare themselves victuals. And so again, that's in fulfillment of God's prediction back in chapter 11. But again, these verses, particularly verse 37, records uh, the number of fighting men that made up the hosts of the Lord. Now, again, it, they're called host a couple of different times throughout this chapter. The word, uh, notice they're, they're called fighting men, or uh, you know, the, the term host also translated army. But the idea is there's, according to this verse, the Exodus account puts the number at 600,000 fighting men, which again, this number coincides very well with the book of Numbers. If you go to Numbers chapter 1, chapter 2, as well as chapter 26 later in the book of Numbers, uh, this is, it records well with these numbers, and it also fits the baby boom that was described back in Exodus chapter 1, right? The, the productivity that resulted in uh, many you know, Israelites, the Hebrews, filling the land, Exodus chapter 1 tells us. Now, again, this number of 600,000 fighting men, and if you go to the book of Numbers, it, it actually breaks it down by tribe, right? How many came from each tribe? But these numbers are where we get the idea that somewhere between two and three million people left Egypt in the Exodus, right? I mean, it, it makes sense. You just kind of do the math. If it's 600,000 uh, fighting men, and recall, a f the fighting men were, uh, there was an age category, remember? 20 to 50. Exactly. So 600,000 fighting men would be men, able-bodied men, 20 to 50 years old, Right? So then if you just kind of then think of averages, right? You say, well, double that. If there, there should be at least that many women, same age, right? And then you, say, then you just start kind of filling in the blanks. Like how many older people, how many younger people, you know, and, and we're, we're in the realm of, of conjecture, but that's where we get 2 million is a conservative estimate, all right? And this is where often they'll say two to maybe even as many as 3 million, uh, but 2 million is, is, again, a conservative estimate of how many came out of Egypt in the Exodus if we take these numbers literally, and I think we should. There's a huge movement out there to try and, um, I won't get lost in it, I'll just inform you of it and we'll move on, because I don't think it's really worth our time to, to, to deep, you know, jump deeply into it. Um, but the Hebrew word alev, which is what we, is translated thousand, is there, there's this uh, movement in scholarship today to try and say alef is not thousand we shouldn't translate it thousand we shouldn't we should translate it clan or family or something like that so it's not actually a number but it, it's referring to a, you know a family or a clan or something like that um, and while that seems to work in some passages it doesn't work in many other passages and so it's again I, I think it's probably best for us to to take that number you know as is traditionally taking the word alef translated thousand taking it as thousand and that but the reason that this has come under so much attack is because it, it's miraculous. Like when you take this many people out of a society and then you, you serve, you know, they survive for four decades in the wilderness, then again, people are like, that's your critical scholars that want to deny you know, the miraculous, etc. They say there's no way this could have happened. Therefore, that's where they try to play with the numbers, right? That, that's, that's their motive behind it. 
Um, but nonetheless, as we'll see when we get to Exodus uh, 15, 16, 17, the whole idea is, yeah, it, it did require miraculous intervention of God to have this many people survive in the wilderness for that long, right? Yes, and then we'll go back. Well, they'd have to find like 600,000 skeletons in the desert too. Sure. Yeah, you mean they got to find their burial grounds? Yeah, well, they <clears> died in the That's way, right. You know? And they haven't found them, so they're using that as an excuse also. Oh, yeah. But the sands can cover anything, you know, from what it looks like. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, no, you're right. I mean, it's an argument from silence, which is always the weakest argument. But nonetheless, they will argue that. Well, they say, well, where are the, the bodies? The other thing that they make a big argument about, which, when you think about it, isn't much of an argument. But they always say, if there were 600,000 or, again, rounded up, let's say, you know, add women, children, et cetera, elderly, let's say 2 million, maybe 3 million people traveling through the wilderness, then there would have been, they would have left a mark, right? And they're like, well, there's no archaeology to support that. Well, the text tells us that they lived in tents, not houses. Like they wouldn't leave a mark on the land, right? They're nomadic people and they would have kept going, right? That's the whole idea. But, but there is plenty of archaeology in the land where the Bible tells us to look for it, right? So we're looking for places that the Bible you know, implies there's nothing to find there anyways, yeah. right? So it's, it's interesting. Um, anyways, there are inscriptions that we'll talk about later. A pharaoh soon after the Exodus records a nomadic people underneath the name Yahweh meandering through the wilderness. There's an inscription about that. <laughs> and, uh, but it's also this Joel Kramer, he actually found the inscription. He, he read about it in one of those early archaeology books, but no one else talks about it. So he, he went and he found it. And yet it's been like there, there's locals that are trying to deface it, the inscription. They're trying to scratch it off. But it's written in stone. So it's still pretty, it's, you know, it's, it's being defaced. But it's been preserved, right? And there's, it's, there's photographic evidence, et cetera. But it's really, there, there is some interesting evidence about the nomadic years. But we're not going to find cities. They didn't stop and build cities, right? They were tents. They were intense and nomadic people. Yeah, I thought. Well, just related to that, then I had a question. But um, I think they have found evidence. And I guess my, my theory is, idea is when you walk these critics of, of creation and the flood. And, I mean, this one guy I watched on YouTube is Christian David Wood. He, he just talks about the, how they, they'll turn their skeptometer up so high that they won't see anything. I mean, I feel like yeah. I, I think there was a new discovery recently that it was like the mountain of blessing and the mountain of curse and they found a tablet, a little lead tablet, tiny little thing at the mountain of yeah. curse. I think that was, is that Mount Sinai? I could be wrong, but, but I mean, I, even if they found the Yeah, Ebal and Gerizim. Maybe that was it, yeah. Well, and that's a big part of it. Joel Kramer makes a big deal of that. He says, you know, the evidence is there, but what they do is they, they reinterpret it, right? Because the... the, the yeah, exactly. And they'll, they'll just say, well, yeah, that's there. Yeah, there's an altar where the Bible says there should be an altar. But we're going to you know, say it, it dates from a couple centuries earlier or a couple centuries later. So it can't be the same altar that the Bible, you know. Exactly. So they'll, they'll reassign it. They'll reinterpret it. But it's there it is. Right? I mean, that, and that's kind of Kramer's point is he's like, read the Bible, look for the evidence. When you find it, right, he's like, don't listen to them when they're trying to fudge the dates. Yeah. And <clears throat> but, yeah, so my question was, do we know what the number was that went into the land after the 40 years? 
Yeah, so it's in the book of Numbers, um, and it's roughly the same size. It's roughly the same size, yep, because the book of Numbers, it's that part of the Bible nobody reads, right, because <laughs> it's a bunch of numbers, but it records two, is it census, censuses, censi? What's the plural of census? Somebody help me out. Two censuses. <laughs> However you say that, <laughs> the point is there's a census at the beginning and there's a census at the end, okay? But the census at the beginning is the, you know, this group of, of Israelis, Hebrews, that are going out of you know, Egypt into the wilderness, but then they die in the wilderness. And then it's the second census at the end of the book of Numbers is recording those who were their kids, right, that are now, because they were under that 20-year-old cutoff, right, but, you know, and then, of course, they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. So, I mean, you have some at the, you know, at the, at the top end, Joshua and Caleb being the oldest, Right, because Moses will not actually go into the promised land. Right, he dies on the outside. But then, the, but that census is recorded at the end of Book of Numbers, and it is roughly equivalent. Uh, because there's interesting, and this is another whole thing, right? But there's predictions that that God gives through uh, not only. Are you familiar with the deathbed scenes? Right, when Jacob's about to die, he prophesies about the tw- his twelve sons. When, when Moses is about to die, he does the same thing in Deuteronomy uh, 33. So you have Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 33, and they're, they're kind of parallel in that sense. But you read the predictions of what they will do, and, there's, and it's, it's interesting to watch how that plays out in Hebrew history. But one of the predictions is that certain tribes, because of their unfaithfulness, are actually going to shrink. And you read the census at the beginning of Numbers and the census at the end, and you can see the tribes that shrink. And then there's tribes that grow. But because, you know, you have shrinkage and then you have growth, they're roughly the same, you know, overall population. Do they try to, do the critics try to make that number be smaller too? Yeah. Do they, they say, but so then these, this little clan of people went in and just took out yeah. all the people in, that were in the... Well, then they deny the conquest as well. Oh. They deny the conquest. And then they say, well, it was just a small band of slaves that escaped one day from Egypt. And then they ran away, and they got away, and then over the years, it's the campfire story, right? It's the fisherman story, is that they, they, you know, it went from a small clan of escaped slaves to then, well, it was a nation, and then it was millions of people, and then God fed them with, you know, water from a rock and manna from heaven, and, you know, and so they just keep stretching the story. That's how they explain how we got the account as is in the scripture. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay, so. All right. I'm with you. So let me, let me you're, you're giving me a fun excuse to get off into this. But as she just said, Danny said, this is so much, so many times using it as an excuse. Okay, so like I told you, the first wave of, of archaeologists were true historians. They did not go to prove the Bible. They went to disprove the Bible, but they were honest in reporting what they found. And some of them, you know, even swapped sides. Like John Garstang is a classic example. And he's like, he's probably one of the greatest early archaeologists. Albright's another one. But all of it shifted. And the big shift goes, is around Kathleen Kenyon, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a female archaeologist who was, she just devoted her life to try and disprove the Bible. And, but it was right, it was 1950, is when she started. What changed between the first wave 
and then everything after Kathleen Kenyon. What changed? Israel became a nation. And then it all got political. And the archaeologists are trying to downplay the presence of Israel in the land. Exactly. Because now it's politicized, right? So the, the Jews aren't, they don't want to say the Jews have had a historic presence in that land because that means it's now their land, right? And so because it's now it's the whole Palestinian issue. That's exactly right. And it's, it's just politicized so much of modern archaeology. It's, it's really frustrating. I have a question about verse 39. Is that all right? Absolutely. Fire away. 39. Oh, no, that's a great question. Yeah, it's probably in Sukkot. So like back to verse 37, it says they journey from Ramesses to Sukkot. And then they stop and, they, and it, it implies they would have made a quick camp. But then they would have just they would have just kept going. Right. So it's like a quick probably, you know, hey, get a meal. Right. Water the animals. And then exactly. Let's have a snack and then we're hitting the trail again. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Throw it on the rock right out there in the, you know, the wilderness. It'll just bake right there. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, spring, March, April, our version of March, April. Yep, Passover, exactly. So think Passover, Easter time. Right. I mean, it was, yeah. Warmer than here, but nonetheless. <laughs> no, you're right. It wouldn't have been the heat of the summer yet. That's true. That's true. Yes. So this is a lot of their workforce that suddenly left. Mm-hmm. Right? So is there archaeological indication that um, Egypt had a downturn or a slowing of production? Can we see something like that, I wonder, that would indicate the massive workforce leaving? So, yes, there are. Um, I'd have to go do some research to, to pull up the exact examples. But her, her question is, is there archaeological evidence of this loss? Because, I mean, if you have a massive workforce, mm-hmm. you know, say, I mean, again, your fighting men is probably your primary workforce, right? 600,000 fighting men, you know, if that's their workforce that is, that is leaving, do we have evidence of that? And, yes, there, there is a, there's a slump, if you will, economically, historically. Now, again, they'll debate that because it, it all depends on what we'll talk about next week, the date of the exodus. Mm-hmm. Exactly. When did this happen? And I think we can say with, with biblical certainty that we're talking 1445, 1446, you know, B.C. You know, and so that's, that's when it would have occurred. But then what does that, you know, because Egyptian chronology is a mess. I mean, if you study Egyptology, their Egyptian chronology is a mess. Yeah. I mean, because it's, and they're building off of Manetho and some of their, you know, he's a, priest he actually lives way later he's like in i think almost new testament intertestamental period is when he lived but he's writing and recording so much of earlier egyptian history but he's he's, he it's confusing he writes conflicting evidence um so that's where some of the debate comes in like okay because we can nail down the biblical chronology but then what does that look like when it comes to their chronology you know where does it match up right and that's where the debate is you know which pharaoh is it and and again probably this is, again, I'm, I'm leaning heavy on Eugene Merrill, but that's where we think Amenhotep II is probably the guy that was the one of the Exodus. <laughs> I don't know who to call on first. <laughs> oh, okay, go ahead, Warren. <laughs> uh, I would suspect that so 
Yeah, in, in Egypt? Egyptian, yeah. So we'll find, yeah, there, there was a slump in Egyptian military excursions for a generation. Yep. Yep, the economy. In other words, if you study Egyptian history, there's an era sometimes called the Egyptian Dark Ages. You know, and, it, and it, I mean, and it, there was a, a period, and I have to go back and, you know, pull up the exact dates and stuff. I don't have them off the top of my head. But, but yeah, there is evidence. And there's also evidence of, of uh, Semitic-type architecture that existed mm-hmm. before this time, but not after this time. In other words, the Semites all left, yeah. right? The, the Semitic influence was gone out of Egypt. Yeah. I think in Deuteronomy, God has said, I have done this. To destroy Egypt's God and to destroy all of Egypt. Yep, that's right. That's exactly right. He humiliated them. Not just their pantheon, but as a nation. nation. They were, yeah. And and, uh, regular history shows us how Egypt went down the tubes. But like you say, people argue the dates. Right, they'll argue the dates, exactly. But nonetheless, there is evidence of an Egyptian Dark Ages. And they... Amen. Amen to that. God says it, and it happened. And he did it. Amen. Yep, and then we'll go back. Go ahead. They um, dug up in that delta area there, in the, in the uh, Gihon area, you know, where the mm-hmm. Egyptians were living. Um, and they said, no, there's not been any um, Semite buildings here. Nobody lived here like that. And they said, you just didn't dig deep enough. You got your time wrong. And uh, when they when they had uh, biblical archaeologists digging down there, they found the Semite housing down there. Yeah. But they just didn't go deep enough because yeah they, they swore that that's not when the Exodus was supposed to be. Right. No, that's good. And that's part of the problem when it comes to archaeology is they they'll they'll misdate stuff or they won't dig deep enough. You know, when we were in Israel, that was one of the big illustrations they showed was at Hatzor is that they dig down and they find a burn layer, clear destruction layer. But then they date it to 1200s and they say, that can't be the Jews, the conquest didn't happen. Well, you keep digging. And what's fascinating is the Bible says there was in the 1400s a destruction layer and in the 1200s, it was the period of the judges. Happened twice. So you keep digging, guess what we find? Two burn layers. One deep, 1400s. One a little higher, 1200s just like the Bible said, right? I mean, in other words, but you're right. It's often incomplete, you know, digging or whatever. They stop and they don't have all the evidence. Amen. That's right. Write that down. That's our big lesson for tonight. You always got to dig deeper to get the truth. Amen. I like that. Bob. Yeah, and we'll, it definitely it impacted them. We'll read when we get there. It doesn't necessarily say they lost their whole army, but it, it was their choice chariots. And it was, yeah, it was kind of their elite core. Maybe they started changing their training, like they incorporated swimming into some of their training. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. After that, that's right. They became the Egyptian version of the Navy SEALs. Okay, guys, everyone's got to swim after this, or you don't pass the test. <laughs> Oh, that's good. 
That's right. Hey, man. All right. Any other thoughts, comments? For sake of time, we'll wrap it up here. But what I'd like to do next week is come back. Uh, we'll pick it up, kind of verse 38 to 42 there. We'll talk about the timing because it tells us, it gives us a really interesting comment as to the 430 years they were in Egypt to the very day they're then released, right? And God predicted that back in Genesis 15. But then it, that, of course, brings up the, the debate of when did the Exodus occur, all right? So we'll come summarize some of the major arguments, uh, get into that a little bit more next week, all right? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the time tonight. Lord, I thank you for, uh, Lord, just the blessing it is to be here, to gather together as your children. Lord, I thank you for this group of people, just the fun that we can have together, looking at your word, being encouraged by it. We ask that you would help us, Lord, as we continue to study, to learn, to grow, as we contemplate. Lord, as we talked about tonight, some of the concepts of biblical archaeology and some of the archaeology that corroborates the, the Exodus event and how... Uh, Lord, so much of it is, is denied or dismissed or reinterpreted by modern archaeology. And yet, Lord, how that ought not shake us or shake our faith, but how we can cling to, to your word and its, its truth, its veracity. That, Lord, we can trust you as the God of the Bible. That we can see that, Lord, this, this is indeed a, a record of, of true history that we can learn who you are, that we can learn, as we uh, mentioned in, in the opening prayer, Lord, that as we learn, we would learn to know you better and love you more and live more faithfully, uh, Lord, uh, to you as a result. So we pray, Lord, as we contemplate these things, as we consider the, the truth of the scripture, that you would encourage us, Lord, uh, found us all the deeper, Lord, in our, in our faith. May we dig deeper to, Lord, find and hold to the truth that, Lord, we might live for your glory. So we commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.